0: I'm Tom McKinnon.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday,
0: January 31st, 2012. Coming up, we look at algae-based omega-3 supplements. Algae are factories of the future. And we
1: learn what probably caused the world's recent little ice age.
2: Looks like explosive volcanism.
0: We begin with a look at some recent news in science. If you haven't
1: had a bowl of cereal or a latte this morning, this news might make you want to drink milk soon, unless you're lactose intolerant or congested with a cold like I am. Pouring yourself at least one glass of milk each day can improve your bone and cardiovascular health with its essential nutrients, including calcium and vitamin D. That's been known for a long time. But new research suggests that drinking at least eight ounces a day of milk also improves your mental performance and might stave off mental decline as you age. Researchers at the University of Maine put more than 900 men and women, ages 23 to 98, through a series of brain tests. Those included visual-spatial, verbal, and working memory tests. The researchers then tracked how much milk the participants consumed. And here's what happened. Adults with higher intakes of milk and milk products scored significantly higher on memory and other brain function tests than those who drank little to no milk. Milk drinkers were five times less likely to fail the test compared to non-milk drinkers. Those who consume the most milk earned the highest scores for all eight outcomes. The benefits persisted even after controlling for other factors that can affect brain health, such as cardiovascular health and other lifestyle and diet factors. The study was recently published in the International Dairy Journal.
3: While climate change may be pushing certain Arctic species out, it seems to be laying down a welcome mat for the killer whale. Arctic sea ice is melting as temperatures rise. Killer whales are migrating north to hunt in these now open waters, and in some cases even colonize them. But these orcas may be throwing off the ecological balance by threatening both prey species and the Inuit hunters that depend on them. Researchers from the University of Manitoba observed killer whale hunts in the Arctic to determine what animals they were hunting and how they killed them. They supplemented this scientific data with traditional ecological knowledge, by conducting interviews with hunters and elders from 11 Inuit communities. They found that unlike the fish diet that most non-migratory killer whales enjoy, the migrating orcas preferred marine mammals, such as seals, narwhals, and even other species of whale. The Inuit described the whale's diet in simple terms. Orcas eat whatever they can catch. The killer whale is a top predator in any marine ecosystem. As its hunting territory expands north, its impact on local ecosystems continues to grow. Some prey species have learned to hide or flee from the orcas, but the local people cannot necessarily adapt so easily. The local and scientific communities hope their collaboration in this study will lead to a better understanding of the killer whale's impact on these ecosystems, as well as improved conservation of Arctic species. The results were published in the journal Aquatic Biosystems this week.
1: And on this day in 1958, the United States entered the space age by launching the first successful orbiting satellite, Explorer 1, four months after the Soviets launched Sputnik. Explorer 1 measured cosmic radiation and led to the discovery of the Van Allen Radiation
0: Belt. Do you think your office mate is just one step away from being a Neanderthal? Well, new research published yesterday can predict just how quickly that evolutionary transition might take. The short answer is a very long time. The researchers predicted that a mouse-to-elephant size change would take at least 24 million generations. Alistair Evans at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, led a team of 20 biologists and paleontologists who studied evolution in the fossil record. Among the researchers' findings, becoming smaller is much faster than becoming larger So becoming a pygmy elephant from a full-size model is ten times faster than a sheep-to-elephant transition. And sea sea mammals evolve at about twice the rate of their terrestrial brethren. The the researchers hypothesize that getting smaller has evolutionary advantages because small animals reproduce faster and need less food. Thus, dwarf versions of mammals are often found in island environments. The study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. Over the past four decades, more than 20,000 papers have been published on omega-3 fatty acids. Most of them are glowing. They claim that omega-3 benefits your brain, heart, and vision, among other things. It's the latest miracle supplement, according to many industry advertisements. And if you're like me, you're overwhelmed when you go to Costco or Pharmaca or just about anywhere that sells dietary supplements, and you see endless sources and brands. There are gazillion types of fish oil. More recently, Antarctic krill oil capsules are fighting for shelf space. And then there are vegetarian sources, such as algae. Each source may have its own environmental, nutritional, and economic benefit or downside. Bill Barkley is a microbiologist. Microbial ecologist. He's in the studio with us to discuss omega-based, uh, algae-based omega three. He's the site manager for DSM Nutritional Research Center in Boulder, and he's um, uh, well, microbial ecologist has more than thirty years experience with this or so. Uh, you've probably been drinking milk that. Is infused with oil from his algae creation. In fact, Dr. Barkley discovered an algae species that's a source of omega 3 in infant formula, milk, and other foods we eat now. So, Bill, welcome to How
4: on Earth. Glad to be here.
1: Maybe start by giving us just uh, omega 3 101. Sort of what is it and what makes fatty acids so important?
4: Well, most of the time in our bodies, we burn fats for energy, but omega-3 fatty acids are very special long-chain fats that have what chemists call double bonds, and those double bonds make them very important uh, structurally. They can flex very easily, so they're very important membrane uh, components in our body, and they can also break down and make messages in our bodies that promote health.
1: And how does that actually promote health?
4: The messages that that, that well no, they do it two ways by making our cells uh, function normally, they can communicate normally, but by the, they 're in the cell walls where cells talk to each other, so they help make all that work normally, and uh, so that what they call the uh, doctors call that modulating your health, maintaining normal health, and then secondly, when they break down chemically, they make these messages. For example, the ones from omega-3 fatty acids, when you go through a stress event, they make your v- blood vessels relax. They make cholesterol not plaque out in your arteries. So it's a very positive type of, of signaling going on in your body.
1: And there are different types, different types. You mentioned the uh, the DHA, the EPA, the ALA, maybe briefly describe what they are and what, what each of them does.
4: The most important of all these uh, omega-3 fatty acids are the very longest chain version. It's called DHA. And it is made uh, from the shortest chain version, which is called ALA, which is alpha linoleic acid that's found in flax. That's not very important for your health. It's a, an important source of PUFAs or polyunsaturated fats for our bodies. But, PUFAs, I like that. <laughs> but it doesn't have all these other medical benefits or health benefits for us. And uh, the, the most important ones are EPA and DHA, and these are found in fish and algae.
1: So why is it, it seems like the flax-based ones are maybe the most popular? They're certainly huge selling, but you're saying they really don't do as much.
4: They're most popular because they're the least expensive. They just come from flax seeds, and so it's very inexpensive, but only 2% of the ALA that you get in flax seed gets elongated to DHA, so you actually need 50 times as much. So it's actually more less expensive to get the preformed version into your body by taking DHA directly. In a per-unit basis? Yes. Yeah.
1: And so... Bring us to sort of your story about the algae. I think fewer people know about algae versus the fish oil or even krill nowadays. And how, how did you come to discover that?
4: Uh, in the middle uh, 70s and, and middle 80s, uh, <coughs> there was—I'll the, start back to ground zero. In the 1970s, there was two Danish researchers, Bang and Dyerberg, were looking at the Danish population and comparing them to Eskimos in the Arctic. And they discovered that there was hardly any cardiovascular disease in the Eskimos. And uh, they did a lot of studies, follow-up studies on the environment, on their food, on their lifestyles. And they came up that that was these long-chain omega-3 fatty acids they were getting in their diet. In seals or what? In whale blubber in and whale? seals and salmon that they were catching. And these were all protecting their bodies by the same mechanisms we just discussed real briefly. So it's good fat. Very, It's good fat, exactly. And... Uh, The uh, pharmaceutical industry picked up on this, and in the mid-'80s, they started selling uh, omega-3 fatty acid capsules, EPA and DHA, to prevent heart disease. But people didn't like it because it tasted too much like fish. They were burping fish. They couldn't stay on it. I and, think we
1: all know that unpleasant experience.
4: Exactly. And I started to follow that story, and I knew that fish didn't make the omega-3s themselves. They got it from algae in their, in their environment that they were feeding on little shrimp that were feeding on the algae. And I thought if you could go back to the algae step and use them as the primary producers to make the omega-3s, you could skip all that and get really high-quality omega-3 oil.
1: Needless to say, there's a lot of algae in the ocean and elsewhere. How would you come to the secret <laughs> ones that you found.
4: Well, I had been working uh, for you know, 10 or 15 years before that on algae as uh, sources of various compounds, and I knew what uh, how I wanted to produce these. We needed to do them food-grade, and, and I wanted to grow them in the dark on—instead of everybody knows the algae grow in the light using CO2— and light to make sugar, and that's how they get their little life cycle started. I wanted to skip that step, grow them in the dark and just feed them sugar so we could make this food grade and very high quality. Just so, like
0: uh, foie
1: gras, you're stuffing them?
4: <laughs> no, not like foie gras, but uh, we would just have a lot of control. You could do it sterilely, and that's what everybody wants, clean, really high quality foods. And we could grow them in the dark and do this. And so I came up with a method, a special method of going out into the environment and looking for just those strains that could grow in the dark and make very high amounts of omega-3 fatty acids and do it very quickly at high temperatures. And I was successful in doing that.
1: And now you guys at DSM are doing this in huge fermenters?
4: Yes, where we grow them in stainless steel tanks that are about uh, 5 stories tall and 12, stories in diam- or tw- 12 feet in diameter, and we just feed them uh, corn syrup, and they're able to reproduce and grow extremely fast. And they're happy? They are very happy.
1: <laughs> and, and describe some of the products that this is in. I know I've seen it in Horizon Milk and obviously have drank it. And
4: Well, the oil we that's extracted from the algae, is, it has about 40% DHA by weight in the oil, and that can be used directly. Uh, like with Horizon Dairy, We it's added to their milk products. It's added to yogurt. In a dry powdered form, we have a special way of making a powdered form. You can put this in bread and in cereals and other forms of food like that. And it's tasteless. It's tasteless. You promise. Yes.
1: <laughs> and just briefly, how does it differ from fish, krill, you know, anchovy, shrimp, or squid, I guess the different kinds of, of oil in terms of the nutritional benefit?
4: Then there was two ways. The main the main way is it has the, the algae form has the highest DHA concentration, and we knew from looking at the research of t- from twenty to thirty years that DHA was the most important molecule. So we wanted an algae that made DHA. The second is it's in triglyceride form so it's very easily to be uh, used and incorporated in food products like salad dressings like in in uh, food and it's an everybody when you make a food you generally use some source of oil like butter so you can just substitute this oil for that. Mm-hmm. The uh, krill forms have a lot of uh, phospholipids in them it's another type of fat and they try to make a claim that it's more bioavailable because of that but most bioavailable of the- meaning that when you consume it, that it is absorbed into your body. And they make claims that it's more bioavailable than the algae form, but most of the studies that have been done uh, show that that's not true.
1: And also, talk a little bit about the international recommendations or the guidelines. How How much should we be taking according to WHO?
4: Well, there's recommendations for this because everybody recognizes now that this is an, a nutrient that's been missing from our diet for the last uh, 100 years. When we commercialized food, putting chickens into cages and cattle into feedlocks, we accidentally took these this source of omega-3s out of our diets. So now they, everybody wants to get it back, and they can go back historically and look at it. When we evolved, we got maybe th- 400 to 600 milligrams of omega-3s per day there was a, uh, a ratio of about four omega-3, four omega-6 fatty acids to every omega-3 fatty acids that we ate in our diet. And they can do calculations now, and they can show from studies, those types of studies and health benefit studies, that somewhere between 200 and 600 milligrams per day is a, a very good dose for maintaining your health.
2: And
1: final question, so if we have a serving or two of fish a week, wouldn't that be enough?
4: It is, but not everybody likes eating fish that often. And, uh, and uh, the, the other way, getting it in your milk and a lot of variety of food products is a lot easier way to do it.
1: Well, thanks so much. Um, appreciate you coming into the show. Hopefully we'll continue on the topic. That was Bill Barkley of DSM in Boulder.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
5: Your turn to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. And here on Earth, shortly after the Middle Ages, something strange happened. Suddenly, the entire world got a little cooler. And then it hung on. The cooling lasted over 500 years, all the way to the 1800s. Those five cool centuries are known as the Little Ice Age. How it happened has been a mystery that modern climate scientists have worked hard to figure out and one that they've argued about. Now, a University of Colorado Boulder-led study appears to have finally solved the mystery. Here to tell us more is the lead author on that study, CU Boulder professor Gifford Miller. Welcome, Gifford.
2: Thanks. Pleasure to be here.
5: Well, it is a pleasure to have you here. Gifford Miller, you've spent a long time and a lot of time in very cold places.
2: Well, I've spent uh, the better part of 40 summers in the Canadian Arctic, but in the summer it's not so cold.
5: In the summer it's not so cold. Hmm. Well, on Baffin Island, that island that's about the size of, what is it, about the size of California, sandwiched there between Greenland and the northern part of Canada, it's it's cold there, isn't it?
2: Yeah, but in the summer it's uh, rarely below freezing, so that's not so cold.
5: Now, how does that place go into the fact that we now have some better answers about what caused that little ice
2: age? Well, one of the, you know, it's, it is a cold place. has lots of glaciers. And you tend to think of glaciers as eroding. But the, some of the smaller ice caps where the where they sit on a relatively flat landscape actually act as preservation agents. They protect what's underneath them. And when they formed, they covered up the plants that were living there. And now that it's warming, they're melting fairly quickly. And as they melt, they expose rooted plants that uh, were recording the time when the ice formed. And so we've been out collecting those plants and finding just when those cold times started.
5: Isn't that ironic that here in this time of warming of the planet is when you're finding the answers about a recent cooling of the planet?
2: It it is a little backwards, but it's uh, and in fact it's a short term because in many of these little ice caps they're gone now, and once they're gone that record is forever lost.
5: So it's a fleeting moment where you can actually capture the moment that all of this happened.
2: Yeah, before it gets so hot that they're gone, we can find out when it was last cold.
5: Well, there are many theories, hotly contested theories, about what caused that Little Ice Age. What were some of the most popular ones?
2: Yeah, For a long time, you know, the, the Little Ice Age has a, has a rich historical record and, uh, and a long geological record. And it's the coldest perturbation in the last 8,000 years. So people have tried to explain it for a long time, and, it, and there's no consensus. And uh, it, it has to be, some, in some way, the, the changes in the sun's strength, changes in volcanism, changes in natural variability. There's even a the suggestion that when population decreases occurred with uh, serious plagues, that that changed the greenhouse gases. So there's a number of factors people have used.
5: Now, Gifford Miller, and all of this, People did say that explosive volcanoes must be part of it. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yeah, explosive volcanism has long been known as a way that the planet would be cooled, and Pinatubo is a classic example of that.
5: And there were some volcanic explosions that happened just before the Little Ice Age began?
2: Yeah, and, and so we've known about these volcanoes. We can reconstruct them pretty effi- efficiently. And, and the reason why volcanism has not garnered more interest is that the... The, the aerosols that volcanoes put in the atmosphere that cools the planet only stay there for a couple of years, and so there's very strong forcing, but there's no persistence from volcanism.
5: Well, Gifford Miller, that is a mystery because there were a lot of explosive volcanoes around the start of the Little Ice Age, but there weren't a lot that would have kept it going for 500 years.
2: Yeah, so you can explain an abrupt beginning, which is what we see from volcanism, because you can get r- dramatic cooling, but you could not explain its persistence just from volcanoes alone.
5: How did you figure out what causes the persistence? Yeah,
2: so to do that, we we turned to the climate modelers, and, and we said, what happens if we have a whole series of eruptions, which is what happened in the late 13th century, four very large explosive eruptions? And it turned out that You can get more bang for your buck with multiple eruptions than even one giant one because the cooling of the surface ocean takes several decades to return to normal. And if you manage to get another eruption before the ocean warms back up, the cumulative cooling is much greater. And that's allowed in the model. This Arctic Ocean sea ice expanded substantially and exported ice into the Atlantic, which led to a feedback that sustained the cooling
5: something called the albedo effect. The ocean got whiter, which meant that the sun bounced off it quicker.
2: Yeah, so the planet was more reflective, but the even larger impact was the the influence on the North Atlantic Ocean, that the ice that was exported from the Arctic Ocean didn't melt until it got out into the central North Atlantic. And that changed the salinity so that the water didn't mix as efficiently. And the water then that went up to the Arctic was cooler and allowed the ice to stay in its expanded state.
5: Well, that's a lot of sleuthing and detective work that your whole group has done. Could we perhaps explode a lot of volcanoes right now so that we got a cooler Earth again?
2: Yeah, so this, which is often referred to as geoengineering, is like perpetual volcanism. And and the lesson from our study, I think, is that you know here are a few decades of volcanism, you know, back after the Middle Ages led to a very much unanticipated consequence. And so uh, caution should always be used when you start to fool with the climate system.
5: You mean that you would not be one to, say, go and sprinkle a lot of dust into the air just to make another little ice age because who knows what the feedbacks might be?
2: Yeah, the climate system is a complex beast. And until we understand it better, it would not be wise to uh, try to alter it ourselves.
5: Would you rather have us do something supposedly simpler, which is to reduce our greenhouse gases and try to be more efficient in our energy?
2: This would be a logical approach to the situation, for sure.
5: Where can people go if they would like to know more about your study?
2: Well, the paper itself was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters, which is set for scientists, but there's been some pretty good uh, write-ups on um, various climate blogs and national networks to give them more Uh, readily digested version of the implications of that paper.
5: Okay, so if people Google your name, Gifford Miller and Little Ice Age, they're bound to find out more about this.
2: They'll probably find a link that takes them somewhere.
5: Well, thank you again for joining us. Gifford Miller, a scientist at CU Boulder who's just uncovered an answer to the mystery of what caused the Little Ice Age.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and was engineered by Shelley Schlender.
0: Shelley Schlender is also our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Boom Bip.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth on a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the
0: iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 Four four seven nine nine one one for how on earth the KGNU Science Show. I'm Tom McKinnon, and I'm Susan Moran.